spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. This is Earth. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. It's about family, and it's about a very special anniversary this week. It's episode 319 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and guess what? We've got a couple of very, very big guests this week. Once again, going to be talking about DC's Stargirl, this time with a member of the Dugan Whitmore family. That's right. It is Mike Dugan himself. Trey Romano is going to join me this week to talk about what it's like to be a part of that family and be on DC's Star Girl, which you can watch every Monday on DC Universe and Tuesday on the CW. Then it's going to be time to talk about the Joker 80th anniversary 100 page spectacular with one of the writers of one of those stories, Paul Dini, who's also the co creator of Harley Quinn. Going to dive into a whole bunch of stuff with him. So it is a jam packed show this week. Going to start it off like I always do. Let's talk about some comics. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Peter J. Tomasi, writer for House of Penance, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. So nice to be bagging and boarding again, or maybe you're still reading on your laptop. Hey, whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading, and we're going to start things out with a book that I didn't realize at the time was 100 pages in the first issue, but here we are. It's Birds of Prey number 1, the 2020 edition from DC's Black Label. It's Brian Azzarello doing the writing here, Emanuela Lapuccino doing the pencils, Ray McCarthy doing the inks, Trisha Mulvihill and John Katzlis. Excuse me, John, if I butchered your name, you're doing the colors there. Steve Wands on the letters. Great cover, too, by the way, by Ivan Rice, Joe Pareto, and Alex Sinclair. Now, the story actually shows several different perspectives. We've got Dinah, we've got Helena, and, of course, we've got Harley from the beginning. So I say the beginning of the story, not the beginning of these characters. I should say that. Now, that kind of somewhat continues, but the stories do converge at some point. There's a new threat that's coming to Gotham, and there's kind of a personal connection for Dinah, at least for just Dinah for now, anyway. And whether or not she wants it to be personal is actually part of the larger story, which I thought was interesting. And Huntress has been, actually has a very interesting interaction of her own with someone that you're going to be very familiar with, especially from maybe the Birds of Prey movie. I don't want to give away too much, but this person gives her an odd request. And when she goes to kind of fulfill said request, she makes a shocking discovery. And then that's also where Harley comes in. And she's fresh out of Belle Rev, and and she's, you know, out of the Suicide Squad now, kind of looking for a clean slate. But she needs to get a little closure first, and then she sort of ends up in the middle of something that she doesn't want to be in the middle of necessarily. Now, again, eventually these all come together, and we get that first meeting between the Birds of Prey, and it's it, you're not going really, really going for humor here, but there's certainly some funny moments in there but there's a very much more serious vibe throughout this if you're looking for you know sometimes it's it's been it's been more lighthearted recently with these characters i guess you would say and not so much anymore and there's a lot of personal stuff in here for Dinah in this first issue this book has a lot of edge to it and and plenty of wit mixed in 
as well. And this new threat, I mean, very hardcore, but and still and still like a touch of mystery left in it as well. The dynamic of the story is really well put together, actually, very well, very well thought out, and very worthy of a hundred pages too. By the way, I wasn't sure how that was going to go, but it definitely was necessary in this first issue. And the art is absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it really ups the menacing factor too of these new villains. And and there's a couple of characters in particular in this book that just really, really stand out more so because of the art. And Dinah's actually one of them. 100% of fantastic job that they do in, in a couple scenes with her in particular that I'm not going to spoil for you because you want to read this yourself. I would throw this in my poll box if it was me. So go on out and read Birds of Prey number one if you haven't already from DC's Black Label. How about we jump into Postal now from Top Cow Entertainment and Top Cow Productions. Postal Deliverance number eight. We've got Brian Edward Hill doing the writing there. Raphael Ianco. I will get your name right at some point, Raphael. I'm doing the art there. Troy Petery in on the letters. And, of course, this was created, the Postal was, by Matt Hawkins. Now, if you're familiar with the series, I'm going to kind of throw out some character names at you that you should be familiar with. The Eden Killer, which is the place where they live, is still on the loose, and things are really getting hard on Mark, who's one of the main characters in the story, if you're not familiar. Now, his mother's returned, and that really adds a lot of tension, as you know sometimes mothers can do, but this mother is is definitely unique. Let's just put it that way. And I don't again, I don't want to spoil too much for anybody that might be new to Postal and want to go back and read the first couple of graphic novels before jumping into this one. Now, it looks like the mother might actually be here to stay longer than you might expect because of something that happens in this issue. And, and I, you know, as somebody who, you know, probably doesn't follow Postal as closely as they should, and I've kind of been jumping in and out, but I, I certainly know these characters and know what's going on enough to be able to read this story. At first, you kind of wonder why Mark d- d- makes a certain decision, and then it kind of gets cleared up. Later on the issue, and you go, oh, that makes sense, but and then, then you wonder if it's actually going to happen. Now, Maggie and Magnum are actually going out to look for this killer, but they sort of, you know, kind of come up empty, or do they? That's the that's the that's one of the questions that pops up as they're on that hunt. Now, we do get to see this killer, by the way. If you, if you didn't get a good look at this killer before, boy, are you going to now. And wow. I mean, you want to talk about a chilling and ruthless character, I actually, you know, I got uncomfortable seeing this character on the page. And if that's not a testament to the art in this book, I don't know what is. And and the way there's there's a certain page here when you read it where the lettering is very, very different. And it's almost like a spiraling effect. And man, it is like Joker level creepy. It is really, really that good. So you get a really good look at this villain on the cover, too. But let me tell you, inside the, it doesn't do justice to what's inside the page. There's n- and there's nothing that's going to prepare you for what happens in the last few pages of this book. I'm not even sure I really need to say any more other than read this. Postal Deliverance number eight was amazing. Another win for Brian Edward Hill and a and a large stack of amazing work that he's done. Just add this to the list for sure, and j- just get it. Trust me on that. 
It's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, we're going to be talking about DC Stargirl with Mike Dugan himself. Trey Romano joins me next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Nelson Lee from DC Stargirl, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. So if you heard my review of the first episode of DC's Stargirl, which you can watch on DC Universe and the CW, you actually heard me talk a lot about this guy. I'm a Mike Dugan fan, so why not get Mike Dugan on the show? It's Trey Romano. What's up, buddy? What's up, man? Yeah, uh, nothing much, man. Now, Trey, when I saw the first episode, I think I got more laughs from Mike than anyone else on the show by far. So did you know right away how fun it would be to play this character? I, I knew right from the audition because I, I initially didn't even know it was a superhero show, so I just kind of went into it thinking that it was just some like fun comedy pilot. And when I was talking to Jeff when I first got the role, he was like, yeah, pretty much Mike and Pat are just kind of going to have the comedic relief scenes during like the series. And I was like, I'm totally down for it. And you know, later in the season, Mike's character does eventually kind of change with the uh, storyline. Yeah, he's 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 supposed to be this really this kind of you don't know what he's gonna say next character. He's kind of a wild card. It was just really enjoyable playing it. So I I definitely didn't know going into it. I did not even know I was reading for a superhero show. That's awesome. Now we actually saw that Pat was very protective of Courtney when she wanted to use the staff, and of course when she wanted to become Star Girl. So do you think he'd be even more protective of Mike if he wanted to suit up at some point? Oh yeah, definitely. I I think Pat kind of kept everything away from Mike. Like he's not really told him about anything like as as he should, and he's he's most protective over Mike in general because. They were just on the road together for their whole lives. All they had was really each other because Mike's mother, uh, like Mike really really never knew his mother, and he was kind of only on the road with his father. So Mike and Pat really have this almost like brother-like bond. And I, I think that Pat, his number one thing is just keeping Mike protected through the, the whole show. Absolutely. Now, Trey, we saw how Courtney reacted when she found out that Pat was a superhero sidekick back in the day. So... How do you think Mike would react if and when he finds out the same thing? I think he'd probably react like, damn, that's cool as hell. Because, you know, he's got like a robot and stuff. And like, and imagine it's like you're, you're like dad had like some robot that he built out of car parts. That's just like crazy <laughs> as hell. It's, it's, you know, it's some really cool stuff. I think Mike would be totally like hyped about it. But also I, I think he'd probably... Uh, take out of proportion, like how cool, like the cool factor of it, and not really think about how dangerous it could be. So I, I don't know. It's 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 going to be interesting if or when Mike finds out. So I think he's a smart he's a smart dude though, and these excuses that they're giving are pretty lame. I don't think it's going to actually take him very long. It may not. I, it may not. Uh, I I think Mike is is very witty, definitely, as you can see from a lot of his dialogue and stuff. I I think. I think they're not fooling anyone, Courtney and Pat, so yeah. Now, Trey, every team needs their Cisco or they need their Oracle to be that person in the chair at the base. Mike seems to have some pretty good tech knowledge, so I'm just saying, do you think he'd be good in that role, maybe? Yeah, totally. No, I I could totally see him like with this like complete like wall of computers just like, you know, chowing down on like a donut or something yeah. listening to like like uh, some like eighties like like classic rock just like jamming with what's called on the intercom with all like the superhero. Yeah, I could totally see that. I think Mike would be totally down for that. 
<laughs> I, I love it. I love it. We're talking to Trey Romano, who plays Mike Dugan on DC's Stargirl, which you can see on both DC Universe and the CW, by the way. Trey, we haven't seen a whole lot of interaction between Mike and Courtney within the family setting in these first three episodes. How would you describe their relationship, and do you look forward to kind of getting into that more as the season progresses? Yeah, definitely. And I think Jeff, the, the showrunner and creator and all the writers, definitely did a great job with progressing Mike and Courtney's relationship because it's kind of volatile at first. And, you know, it, it does, of course, gradually progress the, the respect for each other, I guess you could say. But, um, you know, it, it definitely gets harder before it gets easier in the script. I think Mike and Courtney really do have some respect for each other, but they just don't know it yet. And they're probably going to find that out later in the season. So one of my favorite scenes, Trey, has to be the one with the Cheetos from this past week's episode. I love that scene so much. So what's one thing that you get a whole bag of in one sitting? Oof, that's dangerous. I'd probably say Doritos. You're probably Doritos. Oh, no doubt. That See, this, this, is, this is yeah. why we get along right here. It's stuff like this. It's <laughs> <laughs> stuff like this. Yeah, and you know what else? I... I love, like, Takis and, like, hot chips like that, but, like, I don't think I could ever probably get through a bag of those. Just, would, I think Doritos is the only way to go. Yeah, it would burn my face after maybe, maybe a quarter of the bag. I'm not sure I could do it. I'm not strong enough for that. Burn your face, your whole face. That's, that's very interesting. Exactly. Your whole face will be burned. Exactly. <laughs> Obviously, we haven't seen Mike come anywhere close to any of the members of the Injustice Society just yet. So which one of them would you say, just your opinion, is the biggest threat? I think Icicle is definitely the, the biggest threat, just because... His absolute ruthlessness, and like in episode three, we do see a little bit of his backstory and a little bit why he's this evil, clearly, but it doesn't give him an excuse. But I think the whole Whitmore Dugan family should be really scared of him. And when, uh, you know, Barbara and Mike don't know about any of this stuff, I think that's a really big threat to to them all. And it's Saints really lying in, uh, in Pat and Courtney's character because... They, they like icicle seems like he could just completely annihilate anyone and have no remorse so you know i think definitely just the whole family is very they should be very scared of icicle <laughs> and everyone else i'm scared of icicle and i'm not even on the show so there's that <laughs> you know it's kind of funny that neil who played uh uh, Icicle was just the nicest guy ever. Like, he would, like, end up taking his, like, how's that guy? Was good. Yeah, great. I was like, yeah, nice. Everything's <laughs> very normal. There's no icicle behavior going on here. He Isn't that usually how very, it works, though? Isn't that the know, weirdest thing? Oh, yeah, definitely. A lot of all, all those villains and everything are just such nice guys. It's just so funny seeing them, like, turn it on, play yellow action, and it's just, like, boom. It's, like, stone wall that comes over their face. It's just, like, boom. It's just, it's, it's kind of funny watching it, actually. On set, yeah. No doubt about it. Let's flip the script a little bit start and talk about the heroes a little bit, because we saw Courtney. She was collecting the suits from JSA headquarters this past week, which I'm sure Pat will be thrilled with. We have seen young <laughs> heroes suit up in DC Comics before. There's, I mean, Damian Wayne, Jason Todd, the, the Titans, you name it, down the line. Is there a yeah. particular member of the JSA or maybe another hero that you love that you'd love to see Mike suit up as at some point? Hypothetically, of course. That's a tough question. I think, I think it would be really funny if Mike was like Flash, because like if he's just so like unathletic and just like just that guy and just like a slob, that would just be so funny. Him being the Flash, he's like yeah, you know, I'm the Flash doing Flash things, blah, blah. But I, that I think would probably be the funniest. 
would be the Flash. Trey, before I let you go, man, is there something in an upcoming episode that you can tease for us that you just cannot wait for fans to see? Uh, ooh, I I think I've probably said this before, but um, just the last five episodes in general are just so so well put together and fun. I think that's when just stuff starts to go downhill and like everyone is just really kind of like coming together and people like kind of realizing what's going on. I think that's the last five episodes are really kind of the most exciting. I think for all of us kind of was, uh, because it was just so fun seeing all your characters and what you've been playing for like the season up to that point, like, and see like what, what happens when there's this major shift. I think, I think probably my favorite scene though is, there's this one scene in like episode 12 or something like that where Courtney and Mike are like uh, having this really deep conversation and it's, um, it was just really fun to do. It's really fun to watch and it really shows how far the characters have come. I think that, that scene probably in episode 12 when they're having this like really deep conversation, I think that's probably my favorite scene in the series. Wow. Amazing. Now one, one more quick one before I let you go, cause you mentioned music. How amazing has the soundtrack been for the show so far? Oh, insane! I like in the, at the end of uh, episode two. I, I forgot what the name of that song is, but like well, the song at the end, like when Icicle says yes. "Kill Another Star Man," yes. and I was like, "Damn, that's great!" And also with the montage, I think Luke Luke uh, Luke picked this like Johnny Cash song yep. for the uh, montage of Stripe, and it was just it was just so fitting. Like Luke is just hysterical because he adds his own little like flair on everything that he does you know just like even with like the music and everything just there's the soundtrack has just been so great so far i just feel like you know like with wes anderson movies the soundtrack is always just amazing yep. like it's just always this like that's what i feel like with, uh, with star girls just like this, this the soundtrack is just so fitting like it's like almost like this nostalgic or like early 2000s like kind of uh like soundtrack but also with like Johnny Cash in like you know classic rock and stuff like that. So yeah, the soundtrack's definitely insane. They got to release that on Spotify or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I no, I agree with that. Let's get that done. Let's make that happen. I mean, it's just one more reason why you guys should be watching Star Girl, which you can watch by the way first on DC Universe. Get a little extra footage on DC Universe. As a matter of fact, every Monday and then Tuesdays at 8 p.m. on the CW, you can watch DC's Star Girl again, and you'll see a lot. Of this guy. It's Mike Dugan, Trey Romano. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thanks for having me on, brother. This is Jessica Lucas from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. So, this might be the first time that we've ever heard of a double replacement on a TV series. It's time for nerd news. Before I get into that, I just want to say that myself and we here at the Down and Nerdy Podcast do not tolerate racism, discrimination, or acts of senseless violence of any kind if you want to read more of my statements on what's been going on across the country and the protests and my stance and our stance here at the down and nerdy podcast you can go to at down and nerdy 757 on twitter and on instagram and at down and nerdy on facebook you'll find more on that on there but just know i see you i hear you and i will help as much as i can and as difficult as it is to transition from that To our nerd news stories this week, there is something very interesting that popped up here when it relates to Batwoman again. Yes, of course, the whole, you know, Ruby Rose leaving the show. We knew that already. But here's the other thing that's going on. And that's that Kate Kane might also be replaced 
on the show now. This, according to Decider, the website reports that Warner Brothers and the CW will actually replace the character of Kate Kane entirely and have a completely new Batwoman. And this is supposedly due to a leaked casting call. Now, fake casting call things go out all the time for various reasons. I just want to point that out before I get in to any of this, but it would be for a character named Ryan Wilder. And I'm actually going to read you the description that was given in this story. She's likable, messy, and a little goofy and untamed. She's also nothing like Kate Kane, the woman who wore the bat suit before her. With no one in her life to keep her on track, Ryan spent years as a drug runner, dodging the GCPD and masking her pain with bad habits. A girl who would steal milk for an alley cat could also kill you with her bare hands, Ryan is the most dangerous type of fighter. Highly skilled and wildly undisciplined. An out lesbian, athletic, raw, passionate, fallible, and very much not your stereotypical all-American hero. That is the description of the character as it's been given. Also, this is very much sticking in line with the fact that Warner Brothers wants to cast someone from the LGBTQ community to play whatever character, whether it be Kate Kane or it be this Ryan Wilder character, that is what they are planning on doing. And this new Ryan Wilder character would also open up the role to any ethnicity as well. Now, could this all be a smokescreen? Possibly. It could just be one of those things that popped up, or it could be, you know potentially gauging interest in a newer character to the audience. It could be a lot of things. Wallace Day from Krypton also was rumored to possibly be taking over the role. Now, would it be be the Ryan Wilder role or Kate Kane? We don't really know. But here's the thing. Well, I mean, I still think that this could work, and I would still obviously, you know, watch the show and, and see what would happen with it. You did so much to build up. This show centering around Kate Kane and Alice and Jacob Kane and Sophie and Julian, all these interpersonal connections. The second season of Batwoman, if they do this and go with a Ryan Wilder character, a completely different character, might as well be a fresh start. Might as well be another season one, right? Because you you basically be undercutting. Almost all of that. Obviously, for Jacob Kane, he doesn't know that Kate was Batwoman anyway. So, Batwoman would still be Batwoman. His war on Batwoman would still be in effect. But think about, like, the twist of... Again, spoilers if you haven't seen the the season finale of Batwoman, which you, you should have by now, but just in case. What they set up with Hush and giving him Bruce Wayne's face and all... How does that work as well without Kate Kane being in the mix, right? It just doesn't. And you know what? If you were going to give, if you were going to get rid of Kate Kane entirely and have somebody in the Batwoman role and a new person in the Batsuit, why wouldn't you just make it Sophie in the first place? Sophie already made that big speech to to Jacob about how sometimes, you know, Batwoman has to do what she has to do to get the job done. I'm obviously paraphrasing there. And, you know, Sophie being like a daughter, to Jacob too, and maybe her having to balance the two things that you know the two sides of being a crow and being Batwoman at the same time, and then you'd also have the relationship with Julie would be intact. You know there would still be some sort of friction with Alice, and certainly a personal connection there. 
for Sophie anyway. So I just to me, if you were going to do this with a new character, you've already got one that could take up the mantle. You put in a completely new character entirely, and I don't know how this works with everything that you've built. I mean, you, you could move on from Alice, sure. I'm not saying you have to have Alice throughout Season 2. I, I, I would miss Rachel Scarson because I think she's done a fantastic job. But I'm not saying you have to do that. But at the same time, it's like you built quite a bit in Season 1. And to not have Kate Kane wouldn't make... I, it would be very, very difficult for me to see them move on from that entirely in a second season. And I know they weren't planning on ending on the episode that they did, but you play the cards you're dealt. And it wouldn't be the first time that a role's been recast like this. Obviously not your main character in a situation like this, but it wouldn't be it wouldn't be unheard of to see someone else playing that role of Kate Kane in an upcoming second season. So I don't know. We'll have to see exactly how this plays out. And apparently under this Ryan Wilder thing, they wouldn't recast Kate Kane. So does that leave the door open for Ruby Rose at one point again? Who knows? But I feel like this is just the story that's never going to go away. Well, we know that, you know, depending on what phase you are in your state and in your city, that things are starting to opening open back up again after being closed down from the coronavirus pandemic. And apparently in, in a Wall Street call, the CEO of Cinemark, who is Mark Zorardi, or Zorati, excuse me, has said that Cinemark will not require moviegoers to wear face masks when they open back up. Now, you hear that and you're you're automatically you get a little upset if you're if you're someone that believes in in face masks. If you're not, you you get upset because you you don't know what the big deal is. I'm not taking sides in that debate in the story. I'm just bringing you the facts. So when things do get back to normal, he said. Now, he follows that up by also saying that he doesn't see things getting back to the way they were until 2022 and that 2021 will hopefully be a recovery type of year and things like that and that they would still follow state and local guidelines. So, I mean, is this one of those things you say because you know it's going to grab headlines and and you kind of need all the free press that you can get at this point? Maybe. Maybe it's something a little bit different than that. Maybe that's truly what's going to happen. But, I mean, if state and local guidelines tell people that they need to wear masks in indoors, then you've still, as a business, have to comply to those rules. So, I, I mean, again, it just seems like, hey, if they don't, if they don't make you do it in the state that you're in, we're not going to make you do it sort of thing. And, you know, it goes back to the whole no shoes, no shirt, no service, too, with the masks. So, I mean, I guess they could say whatever they wanted to do, basically. But, again, I don't want to get in to that debate, but it just seems like it's something that they're saying to, to garner attention. And I'm not sure this is something that they're really going to make a big deal out of. I just think it's really interesting that you would come out and say that during an, during an investor call because I feel like that would make your investors in your potential patrons too by the way a little bit nervous and it seems like everybody's looking at Warner Brothers Tenet movie as the let's see what happens sort of thing that movie's supposed to come out on July the 17th in theaters it seems like that's the one that everybody's pointing to to go all right well we're, we're gonna see what happens with this and this will be the litmus test for everything else going forward and we don't even know how many movie theaters will even be able to be open at this point you know, AMC is saying they might not be able to reopen at all. There's just so many different things happening 
with movies, it seems like the future of the movie theater industry is really going to hinge on these next six months and maybe even into 2021 because you can put all the reg- you can drop all the regulations you want, but you're still looking at the possibility that people just aren't going to go back to the movies. I mean, the movie theaters were already having a little bit of trouble getting people to come to the theater as it is for various reasons. Now you throw this into the mix and that little bit of unease. I don't know. This is a this is a tough one. I'm very interested to see what's going to happen, but I still I don't know why you'd put that out there saying that you're not going to make people wear masks. And then you after you say that in the, during the same call, you're kind of backing off of it as you go. So to me, it just seemed like this is something you say to see if you can get a little bit of attention. Hey, I'm talking about it. So it kind of worked. And, you know, maybe this will fire you up. Maybe you wouldn't. Would this make you want to go to a different theater chain that is going to require masks for X amount of time? Or is this the exact opposite? You're going to go here because you don't have to wear one. So this will just be very interesting to see if this story changes. As of me recording this, this is what they're saying. And will this be clarified at some point? Who knows? I'll have to keep my eyes on it. Now, if you've been waiting for Daredevil to possibly be saved in return with the original cast, the TV, we talked about Charlie, what Charlie Cox said a few weeks ago. Well, Marvel is getting the rights to Daredevil back in approximately six months. This would actually be the end of the two-year contractual window with Netflix since that whole divorce with Disney happened. Now, this there's actually a countdown on the Save Daredevil Instagram page, and, you know, at Save Daredevil, that has a countdown for how long it's been and how much longer that we have to go. That's kind of where this whole thing started. It, it was also said somewhere that uh, Luke Cage and Iron Fist might actually be able to be used a little bit earlier. But I think I said this when we were talking about everything with Charlie Cox. Not only you know is everybody going to be available to possibly come back and do this, but would you want them back? Would you want these shows back if they couldn't be presented in the same mature manner mature content manner, I should say, that they were on Netflix. Like, Disney Plus, they've pretty much held fast in they're not going to have any R-rated content on Disney Plus. So that that automatically, to me, disqualifies Daredevil, Luke Cage, and Jessica Jones. Maybe you could put Iron Fist on there, but it's to the point, you know, would you want, do you want more Iron Fist? Even though Season 2 was better, was it better enough to make you want a Season 3? Don't know. So, you know, we, I guess that's across that bridge when you come to a kind of scenario. But to me, Daredevil doesn't work when you kind of, you know, back it off a little bit. You, this this has to be presented the way it's been presented. That was the beauty of it. There were really no restrictions on this character, and there, and there should not be. And the way you need to tell these, you know, very, very tough stories in, in these deeply personal and violent issues you need to give us the show that we got on Netflix and maybe Hulu is actually the better home than Disney Plus I mean Disney owns most of Hulu anyway right would Hulu be the better I mean they're already doing the adult animated series for Marvel on Hulu Hulu's really doubling down on adult animation actually and and, you know that the I don't know if the Hellstorm series is is or Hellstrom series is still happening or not. They were going to do that Ghost Rider series. You pulled the plug on that. So is it possible that we could get a 
quote unquote R rated Daredevil series on Hulu. That to me seems like a way more likely destination than Disney Plus. Obviously, you, you know, your mind automatically goes to Disney Plus because, man, wouldn't that be good content to have? But if I see Daredevil going to Disney Plus and, you, and you're too afraid to give us that R rated content, I'm sorry. I, 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 don't, I just don't know how that would work. And I mean, and you see that the Deadpool movie is already, you know, a sequel to Deadpool 2 is not even in discussion right now, it seems like. It seems like it's being put on the back burner for other things. And uh, I don't know. I just get nervous that this will end up going to the wrong place and it'll just ruin everything. Here's something that should be very, very interesting to watch, and that is next season of DC's Legends of Tomorrow. Now, I'm going to talk about some spoilers for the season five finale as I go here, because you see what happens. You see, you know, Charlie Maisie Richards, the seller. She's going to be leaving the show. So that's another cast member that's gone. And then we already knew from the synopsis for this upcoming sixth season that Sarah abducted by aliens. So we're going to be dealing with aliens. We knew we were going to be dealing with aliens from the beginning. So now you've got the crew of the wave rider once again, minus their captain. And we know a new person is going to be joining the wave rider as well. And I was thinking about this and I was like, is it possible that we could see Adam strange as the character that joins DC's legends of tomorrow? Because think about it. He's got time travel experience. He certainly has experience dealing with aliens of multiple kinds and we already know that we're not going to be talking about the Dominators here. Phil Klemmer's kind of hinted at that in a couple of different interviews that he's done this week. So, I mean, you you saw what Adam Strange could do on Krypton. He, the character would fit right in with this Legends crew. As a matter of fact, Sean Sipos, who has been a guest on the show and was in Krypton as Adam Strange, the way he portrayed that character seems to me like he would fit right in with that cast as well. It just seems like a character that just slides right into the mix. And and could and maybe these same aliens that took Sarah are maybe maybe they're invading Ron or something's going on there. And Adam Strange has just as much of an interest in this as the legends do. So he's like, I'll help you if you help me, sort of situation. Plus, think about it. Uh, Warner Brothers in DC have had the they had the Adam Strange animated short that they put out recently. I think it was on Justice League Apocalypse War. The blue, the the Blu-ray. They had the Adam Strange, uh, DC Showcase short on there. We've got Strange Adventures, which is very popular right now for DC's Black Label. This is a character that obviously DC wants to highlight. So I don't see why you wouldn't do this. And you've already got the perfect guy that you had casted as Adam Strange anyway. Now I know that you know some fans wanted wanted Green Lantern to be this character. But I mean, with the green lantern series coming to HBO max, I just don't see that happening at all. I just don't see that And booster gold. I mean, booster gold to me is a maybe, and that's a character that wouldn't shock me to see the join the Arrowverse at some point, but this just doesn't seem like the right spot for booster gold. Even though, again, I think he'd fit in pretty well with the legends too. But again, this wouldn't be the first time that, you know, the Arrowverse rescued somebody from a canceled DC series. I mean, Matt Ryan, when Constantine was canceled, eventually ended up on the Arrowverse. So why couldn't they do the same thing with a character on Krypton? Just It just seems like this is a good fit. So I've got my eyes open on casting announcements for DC's Legends of Tomorrow. I would not be surprised at all if we see this thing happen. 
That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, time to talk about the 80th anniversary of The Joker and the 100-page spectacular that's coming up. Paul Dini will join me to talk about the story he wrote next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is John Sipos from Krypton, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Celebrating 80 years of The Joker, as much as you can celebrate a clown prince of crime with a 100-page anniversary issue that's going to be out on Wednesday, June the 9th at your local comic book shops. And how can you not include this guy here who's told a ton of him? It's Paul Dini. How you doing? I'm great. How are you? Doing fantastic. Now, there was a time, Paul, where villains did not really get their own stories and did not receive a spotlight like this. Mm-hmm. What would you say was the first story involving the Joker that stood out to you? Oh, I got to tell you, James, no doubt it's uh, Joker's Five-Way Revenge uh, by Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams from the mid-'70s. I remember I was in an airport, and I was going somewhere with my folks, and they said, you can buy a comic book or something. And that one just, it, it, it just lunged off, the, off the, the, the stand for me. And I'm saying, I'm buying this one. Because it was just so dramatic, that image of the Joker uh, looming over Gotham City with Batman on, on the playing card. I, I mean, I, of course, I knew who the Joker was, because even, even as a little kid, through osmosis, you grow up knowing these characters because you see them on TV or you'll see a toy or there's some sort of association. So I knew that, yeah, yeah, Joker is a guy on the, on the, on the TV show. He laughs and he's sort, of a, he's sort of a clown, but he never really does anything threatening. I mean, all that threatening. I mean, he never succeeds in killing him with uh, the elaborate death traps. But here, he, it was like so dramatic and so demonic to show him like that that it, it instantly captivated me. And it's like, man, I, I got to buy this. And when I read the book, it's, it's, I was going, well, he's not got some big scheme involving giant props or anything. He's really he's killing off his own men because he suspects that one of them turned him into the, the police. He doesn't know which one it is, so he might as well kill all of them. And, uh, and he knows once he gets Batman involved, he'll, he can take care of him, too. So it was, the, the story was intriguing because it was so far different from what I'd seen the Joker, uh, what I was aware that he was doing before. I had seen him in a couple of other comics, and I thought he was kind of funny and everything, but once he started hunting down his men, and, and especially the dramatic way that Neil Adams drew everything, mm-hmm. it made it really creepy and scary. He just, he, he, not only could he make, him, make the Joker tremendously entertaining, in close-ups or when he's doing something funny, but also when he's looming in the shadows, you just see like a hint of him in the background, like he's going to pounce on somebody. It was it was just tremendous on every level, and I just thought, yeah, this is the guy. I can't wait to see him again in a comic book. Now, for anybody that doesn't know, you've been able to tell a lot of different Joker stories, actually, whether it be in Batman the Animated Series or your Arkham Games comics as well. What would mm-hmm. you say is the one thing that's true of the Joker, no matter what medium the story's being told in? It's always funny. I mean, you, you, there, there has to be this sort of mordant twist to what he's doing that really catches you off guard and makes you laugh despite yourself. And I don't mean necessarily mean that he's cracking a joke or he's making a pun or he's doing something you know, visually silly. There has to be that twist of words or that sudden shift in his characterization where you suddenly... Find yourself laughing despite yourself, despite the fact that he's, he's either just killed somebody or is going to do something horrific. You kind of, like, like a shock comic, you, you, when they say something, you kind of go, oh my God, I can't believe they did that. And it's the same is true with the Joker, when he's got those little mood shifts that only he is uh, you know, aware of when, he, when he's doing them or how he's going to do that. He's always about surprise, and when you're surprised, that's, that's when it gets fun and that's when it gets really scary. 
Paul, prior to this 80th anniversary issue coming out, you had a story in Detective Comics. I believe it was number 826 that was just absolutely incredible. So talk about what the process was like in coming up with that story. Uh, you're talking about Sleigh Ride? Yes. Is that right? That, that one, the one with Robin? Some of the Joker stories I'm happy with just occurred to me in a flash, and that was one of them. And I just thought, what if he's got Robin... And what if he's Robin is in an absolute no-win situation? And what if the Joker is toying with him in a particularly sadistic fashion? How does Robin get out of it? He, can't, he has to use his wits. And the one thing he has to do is kind of think like the Joker. And not just like what he's, what he's going to do as far as causing mayhem. It's like, where's this guy's soul in that he has one? Where, what, what does he like? How can I get that? And so he's like... He's, he's, he's tied up, he, he's bound up, he finds a way of escape, but no, Joker put that in there deliberately just so he could take it away from him. He's, he's mind-screwing him the entire way, and, and knowing that that's going to unnerve him, and Robin has to go to a dark, colder place where he has to really sort of think, he has to tune everything out, and it's like, okay, uh, I have to use Batman-level cleverness to get to this guy. I have to listen to everything he says. And when the Joker makes some sort of reference, some sort of uh, innocent reference, Robin is able to, uh, to leap on it and twist it to something the Joker will appreciate. The Joker talks about he's going to run over a Santa Claus. The story takes place at Christmas time, and Robin quickly hits, hits on this thing. There, you can't fool me. There ain't no sanity clause. So uh, automatically he's, he's bringing up a non sequitur, but he's also bringing up a Marx Brothers reference, which he know the Joker will, will spark mm-hmm. to the way that a science fiction geek might spark to a sudden Star Trek or Star Wars reference, and they'll go like, oh, yeah, okay, so you know what I like. And suddenly that works long, just long enough to divert the Joker from hitting the street corner Santa Claus and get off on this tangent, and then it gives Robin the one second he needs to get free and beat the living crap out of him without mm-hmm. stopping, without responding. It's like, how do I get this guy distracted? I have to... I have to find something that appeals to him, and I have to work on that because that's what he does. So he does that without you know, taking it to the fatal level that the Joker often uses on other people. But he, when Robin strikes, he strikes without mercy, and he just does that. And I thought, what's going to put him in this situation? How do I work on that? And what does Joker do to get under Robin's skin, other than just threaten to kill him, which he knows he's going to do at some point? But Joker is sadistically plowing through people on the street, through busy Christmas shoppers and pretending like he didn't do it. Like, oh, they just jumped out in front of the cart. Mm-hmm. You did that deliberately. Mm-hmm. And, but again, that's another level where it's like, did you see that? How did that happen? You know damn well how that happened. You made that's it right. happen. So it was all those elements. Those, the, they just all sort of clicked for me. And I said, oh, this is good. This is a nice, dark little Christmas tale, I can tell. But the Joker gets his at the end. And, uh, you know, all is well for the moment. Now, when you're working on something as big as the Joker's 80th anniversary issue, I mean, the art to me is just so, so important and how you bring out that persona of the Joker. So what made this particular art team for your stories in here right for you? And what was the right fit here? DC just, uh, you know, they, they heard what the story was going to be. And they said, well, what do, you, what do you think? And I said, great. And we went ahead with it because uh, they wanted to find an artist who could really complement weirdness of the story. You know, it was a natural fit. So, and I was very happy because it, it turned, it, there was a, a bit of grotesqueness in there. There's a bit of uh, humor. There's drama all the way through it. So I was just very, very happy with, with the job that Riley did. 
talking to Paul Dini, who, of course, is one of the writers on the Joker 80th anniversary issue, which you'll be able to get your hands on Wednesday, June the 9th at your local comic book shops. Now, of course, Paul, you are one of the co-creators of Harley Quinn with you, yourself and Bruce Tim. And speaking of mm-hmm. Joker and Harley, it seems like there are fans that have kind of a very different interpretation of their relationship, depending on who you talk to. So as someone who was there from the beginning, how would you describe their relationship and how it's evolved over time? Well, <laughs> I don't think anybody expected it to last. I mean, it's, <laughs> nope. uh, no, that would be pretty sad if um, 30 years later she's still following him around and uh, taking orders and everything. To me, Harley was always an interesting character in that she represented at the time that we created her somebody who didn't believe in herself very much on a certain level and yet found some sort of validation in loving this this person. And I think I was inspired by uh, a number of things, like what would make a person want to be with somebody like that. And part of it was by reading letters from people had written to people in prison who said, who might be writing to a mass murderer and saying, I understand you. I love you. You're not the bad person that they say. And I thought, what if they, you know, and that was part of the thought process with Harley and the Joker is like, what if she was one of those people? And early on, she was pretty much just a hench person who was part of his gang but even then we were thinking, like, who would follow along after somebody like this? And what if we put that in, in her backstory? And then the more we worked on it, the more we came up with the idea that she was his therapist and everything. And that gave it a, a, a really dark twist to it, that he had reached into the mind of somebody who was trying to help him and then twisted him. And the way that that story kind of worked was if Harley uh, or Harlene Quinzel wanted something out of him first, which was if she was ambitious. And from the inception, she was not a terribly nice person. She was a bit of a schemer and a user. And she looked at the chance to get into, uh, you know, I'm going to be a a pop psychiatrist and I'm going to, you know, make a a reputation. And uh, she was into it sort of for the wrong things, you know, helping people at some point. But at, at at, at one level, the Joker, you know, saw her coming and, you know, set a trap for her. And there's no doubt in my mind that some of the things he told her were true. It's just that, you know, he, his, his life is a combination of different events. And I think ultimately he'll say what he has to in order to get what he wants. He's the ultimate narcissist in that way. So if, he, if he's act caring toward her, he can be for a moment. But then, you know, whatever else he wants, you know, supersedes that. And then he'll just as easily fling her under a bus until he gets what he wants, and he'll come back. And if he has some use for her, he'll, you know, sweet talk her, and she'll come running back. Not anymore. I don't think. Right. I think the um, the uh, relationship is 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 pretty much gone for good as far as that goes, because she's seen the other side. There is no good to him. There's just this narcissist. I mean, she's a smart woman, and I, I'm very happy that we've been able to. Uh, we meaning pretty much everybody who's worked on the character since then has taken her from that to uh to her own place as a uh if not a full hero then a anti-hero with a number of admirable uh qualities she was a cautionary story at first about what happens when someone loves too much at the risk of loving you know they don't love themselves enough but they look at somebody else as saying this is the magic person who can fit me who can fix me and in her case it's the worst person in the world but that's you know it was a story of obsessive love and the terrible consequences and as a result harley's become very popular and so she's moved on and 
is uh, healthier and happier, I think. Absolutely. Paul, I don't know if you've had a chance to actually read the whole 100-page 80th anniversary issue for The Joker yet, but if you have... No, I have not. I've not, I've not seen it uh, all put together. I've seen pages here and there, but I haven't seen the whole thing. Okay, so I'll ask, I'll ask from this perspective then. Are there any okay. stories that you're kind of looking forward to seeing or creative teams that are involved? You're like, wow, I can't wait to read that story. Uh, I want to read them all. I mean, I can't wait. I mean, when, I, when that arrives here, I'm going to go out uh, the backyard with some limeade and just enjoy the whole thing for an afternoon. And I'm going to savor each story because I know they're all going to be great. It's going to be like a big box of candy. And it's like some are going to be really sweet and some are going to be, you know, crunchy frog and, you know, take you by surprise and go like, oh, you know, terrify you a little bit. I, I'm, I'm so looking forward to it. That and the Catwoman uh, book, which I believe comes yes. out this week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got a double dose of villainy coming out one week after another. They were delayed because of the uh, of course. Uh, quarantine, but you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing them. Here's something that I wanted to ask you, because you've worked sure. with, with Mark Hamill multiple times yeah. in this role as the Joker. And I mean, in your opinion, is it kind of hard to perceive anyone else as the Joker for you? Or do you feel like there's a clear separation between animation video games, live action, and so forth? Well, a lot of, a lot of actors have done tremendous jobs as, as the Joker, and they've all put their unique spin on it, and they've all been, I would say 100% have been captivating and scary. But Mark, for me, is always the guy. And, and I think it's because, not only, it's not only his vocal quality and the energy he puts in the role, but I also think he, I also know that he thinks about the character a lot. And this goes back to when we would do an episode in, in, in the animated series that might have been based on something like the Joker's Five-Way Revenge or Joker's Millions or something like that, based on a comic book story. And Mark would take the comic out of his comic book collection, of which I think he has every comic book ever published, and we'd find you know, what the artist and writer had uh, crafted for the Joker in the original story, and he'd, find, he'd look at that for further inspiration, and he would use that in his performance. It, it was wonderful to watch him act and stand up and get into the role and use his whole body when he would, you know, perform that character. And he's a, he's a joy to write for because he has such a knowledge, not only of the character, but also of comedy. And I try and weave some of that in whenever I I write the Joker, I know Mark's going to be doing the voice. I will throw in something that is a nod to like an old time comedian, knowing that when Mark reads the scripts for the first time, he'll go like, da, 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 da. Hey, that's Bilko. And I'll go, yeah, like, yes, it is. And they'll go like, oh, that's great. You know? And so uh, mm-hmm. I wrote a script uh, a few years back where Joker pops into a, uh, a prison to rescue Lex Luthor. And there are a number of things he could say when he, he, uh, he's got a mother box. He just sort of appears behind a guard and he could say, peekaboo, or he could say, surprise. And so, but what I had him say is, glad to see you, which is Phil Silver's when he, it was like a, a trademark remark uh, of his when he would make an entrance or something. Excellent. And it's obscure and everything, but when he saw it, he goes, glad to see, oh, this is, you're, you're doing Phil Silvers, you're doing Bilko. And I said, yeah, because, I, I mean, he and I have sort of casually discussed, like, Joker steals from other comedians. Mm-hmm. And so no he, will, he will use another comic's catchphrase or gag when it's appropriate, when he knows he can get a laugh out of it. Because, like I said, Joker's kind of a nerd. <laughs> He's mm-hmm. a nerd when yep. it comes to, to comics and comedians. And I imagine that in happier days, he used to sit around, um, you know, when they would have a peaceful night at home, he and Harley would sit there giggling over, like, 
like uh, Three Stooges and, uh, you know, like, uh, oh, look, look, when Curly puts the, the spike in Moe's eye when he's climbing up the telephone pole, that's a genius, you know. <laughs> I imagine that they would they they would laugh over something like that, you know. It's like, and what's next? Well, we got a Curly Joe or a Joe Besser. Ah, yeah. I'm done. <laughs> Let's go rob someone, you know. Excellent. I love it. Speaking of what's next, Paul. Before I let you go, when a character's been around for this long, it's been part of so many iconic moments. The question of what's next has to come up. So I know that DC has three Jokers coming up. They've got Joker War as well. But what do you think is the long-term future of this character? I don't know anything about what they've got in development or, or what's coming. I know other than the fact that it is coming. All I can say is, with, with some authority, and this is just myself, the character's not going to go anywhere. He's going to be around for a long time. And because uh, he is so much a part of the public consciousness now, he's gone from being that, oh, yeah, that clown Batman fights to uh, Jack Nicholson. Everybody identified with, with Jack Nicholson for, uh, for the Tim Burton movie to Heath Ledger to last year to Walking Phoenix. So the Joker has really become a cultural icon, and he's a, he's a great character in and of himself and apart from Batman. I, I mean, the evidence of this is, like, look how many, how many wonderful actors have played the Joker and, and, would, and would be thrilled to play him now. I mean, he, he's, an academy, he's a great character that an actor can, can get involved with and, and live and, and work through their craziness. And, you know, two actors have won Academy Awards for portraying him. He's popular. He's the consummate villain. People love him. And yet, you know, he's, he's the number one big bad. I, I can't think of any. There are a lot of other villains in comics who might beat him as far as the sheer power and magnitude of what they do, like Thanos and Doctor Doom and Galactus and such. But because, like, like Batman, Joker is essentially human. He doesn't really have superpowers, and yet he keeps coming back and he keeps taunting, and he, he, he'll always have that appeal. He, he's a way that people can uh, kind of live through and uh, express uh, darker things. And, you know, it's a hell of a lot of fun, too. No doubt about it. And we're going to be having a lot of fun with the 100-page 80th anniversary issue for the Joker that's going to be available at your local comic book shops and, of course, digital retailers as well on June the 9th. And I can't wait for you guys to see this guy's story as well. It's Paul Dini. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you, sir. It was a pleasure. One thing I love about Paul Dini is you hear how in-depth he gets when he talks about this character. And he talks about the stories that he's been a part of. Imagine being a part of a character's story journey in so many different mediums, and Paul Dini's been able to do that with the Joker, with Harley Quinn, and so many other of these characters. So it's one of those things where you look at an 80th anniversary spectacular issue, how do you not include Paul Dini when you're talking about the Joker? So it was, and it's an amazing story that was written by Paul in this. Wait to see Riley Rossmo's art. It is absolutely amazing and get the joker 80th anniversary issue 100 page spectacular when it hits your local comic book shops and digital retailers on tuesday june the 9th remember dc tuesday releases so that's something you need to keep in mind so get yourself that issue a day early make sure you're letting your local comic book shop know that you want your copy of the joker 80th anniversary spectacular that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Paul Dini for joining me this week. Thanks for Trey Romano joining me this week to talk about DC's Stargirl as well. Make sure you're watching it Monday on DC Universe, Tuesday 
on the CW. If you want to keep track of all this, and I know it's a lot, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Also, follow along on social media at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram and at downandnerdy on Facebook. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.